I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to Off The Beat and Track Podcast. I'm your host, I'm Stu Whiffin. It's another week, therefore it's another episode. Today's episode, I sit down with Andrew Levy of the brand new heavies and we have a absolutely cracking natter. Andrew chooses some fantastic records, and and, and, and you're going to love them. Honestly, as soon as this one's done, then go and check out his playlist, because, uh, yeah, it's just going to have you moving and grooving. Um, before we get on with the chat with Andrew, um, I uh, want to do a few thank yous. I'd like to thank the team at the Blue Murder Club podcast. They produce this, um, they produce off the beaten track. So big thanks to them. And big shout out to uh, the boss man over at the Distraction Pieces Network, Mr. Scroobius Pip. Off the beaten track, he's very proud to be um, over on the Distraction Pieces Network. And always uh, a huge thank you to you lot for um, continuing to support, listen, uh, and, and, and encourage this podcast. It's, um, it's well over 500 episodes now, and it's been such a delight doing it. And, um, and it enables me to have conversations like I've just this second had with uh, with Andrew, and it was so much fun, and and we'll get onto it very very quickly. Um, I should also say, um, if you enjoy this podcast and you'd like to support it, there's loads of ways that you can. Um, it's really easy if you just go and subscribe, um, and so whether it's on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or whatever, just click subscribe. It, it does help. Um, and if you want even more content, um, you can head over to my patreon and and over there you get to watch all the episodes i put the videos of all these episodes up there and uh you get to access the the monthly live show where you can feature on the podcast um and you get access to all of my little playlists and, and mixtapes and a massive back catalog of episodes and radio shows uh and it's 99 well no hang on it's a dollar so that's about 79p a month and that's at patreon p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com um, off the beat and track of the dot com forward slash off the beat and track. Oh, do you know what? I've not recorded a podcast for a few weeks, so I'm a little bit um, a little bit rusty on the off the beat and track intro. But yeah, patreon.com forward slash off the beat and track. Um, and also, if it's your first time listening, welcome. You're well late to this party, as uh, you just heard me say. We're over 500 episodes in. But um, if you like this episode, why not go and check out the back catalogue? You can hear me talking to Sheik. You can hear me talking to Acid Jazz main man, Eddie Pillar. Um, you can hear me talking to James Lavelle. You can hear me talking to Rock Roll E, like the Foos, and Motley Crue. 
Um, some incredible acting talent from Joe Hartley to Thomas Turgus to Maxine Peake to David Duchovny to Michael Smiley uh, through to real comedy heavyweights like Ed Gamble, James Acaster. Um, God, the list goes on. Like I say, there's over 500, so go and get stuck in um, to that back catalogue. Snowboy, go and listen to my chat with Snowboy. He's a fellow Essex boy, and he was very much involved in in that soul and uh, an acid jazz scene um, that, that really blew up the, the, the brand-new heavies back in the day. Um, but right now, you've only got one thing to worry about, and that's sitting down, popping your headphones on, or wherever you're listening and enjoy today's episode of Off The Beat and Track Podcast with the brand new heavies. It's Off The Beat and Track Podcast on the Distraction Pieces Network. With me, Stu Whiffin. Andrew, how are you today? I'm good. I'm good. I'm uh, just off, just uh, dropped off my kids home. So if you hear any shouting or screaming, then it'll be them playing next door. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very used to it. I've, I've, I've literally, sort of, over lockdown, I turned the uh, this little shed that I'm in into more of a little studio just to kind of escape uh, the noisiness of uh, <laughs> my kids. So uh, I can escape yeah. to the end of the garden. And, uh, and I'd be lying Lucky if I said I only escaped up here to do a podcast. I'm like, yeah, yeah, I've got another podcast. <laughs> I know, I'm there, I'm there too. I'm very close to that, doing that as well. <laughs> Well, look, it's, it's it's great to have you here, and um, and I've had a look through your, your your song picks, and there's some fantastic records that we're going to talk about today. I'm really looking forward to it. But we kick things off always with the song with the greatest ever intro, please. What you got for me today, Andrew? I have got um, an amazing song actually by Dinah Ross that isn't massively popular. It probably is in America, but not massively popular here. Um, in the UK, and um, it really kept. It, I, I first really heard it when I was just scooting around on YouTube, and I saw this video of her playing in Central Park in 1983 or 82. And she started off with this song, and in the intro was just spectacular. It's really dramatic and and um, really intense. And it was it was like an, an early evening dusk performance in Central Park, and I thought I've got to get this track. And um, I then found out that it was written by Michael Jackson and produced by Michael Jackson as well. And, you know, they, they were quite close through Motown and stuff. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's, I just love the, the drama and the theatre about the, uh, in the intro. So, um, yeah, this is it's called Muscles by Dinah Ross. Yeah, it was it was huge in the states that record, wasn't it? And it, it, I think it was a single in the UK, but I don't think it kind of done anywhere near what it done stateside. No, no, it didn't. I think it was just just too too weird, I think. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And I guess that would have been maybe around the time, maybe, was that when they were, because they worked together on the Wiz, didn't they? The uh, the, the, the the Wizard of Oz thing, I'm sure both of them together. were. Together. Yeah. From, that would the, from when he was really super, super young, yeah. Yeah. All that Motown family and stuff, yeah. yeah. I mean, how much of an influence um, has Motown been on you? Do you know what? I never used to really be into Motown that much. Um, growing up as a teen, I was fiercely into. Obviously, grew up with reggae because my Jamaican heritage. My parents, my dad used to bring records back every time he visited in the summer. So he used to bring back stacks of seven inches with the holes cut out, and he used to hand them to me, and I used to run off to the front room and play them. 
um, over and over again. Um, and then I started getting into disco late to mid 70s. So I was obsessed with disco and chic and all this stuff from America. And, um, but Motown was always, I don't know, I'm not sure why, I'm not really sure why. It just wasn't in my, in my kind of, on my radar. Yeah. But later on in life, after I started writing songs and listening to music from a different perspective in terms of songwriting and structure and melodies and harmonies, I, I, I just think that all the, anything that came out of that label and also Stax is just phenomenal. I mean, some of the songs even now just blow me away. It's ridiculous the the, it's the ridiculous. amount that come through. I don't know how they, I don't know how they they created so many incredible songs. Yeah, and I mean, I mean, it, it, it's really weird because I'm. I often ask guests about songwriting now and and the fact that you know when, when the brand new heavy started or when Motown originated, like you know the, during those times there was still a very sort of formatted way of, of 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 getting exposure for your music it'd be sort of radio and it'd be press and and now things have changed you know where we're seeing these apps like tiktok and we're seeing that the importance of getting exposure via certain spotify playlists and things like that have become kind of important for for marketing bands now and a lot of the things that i see within them whether it be TikTok or, or Spotify. And I don't know loads about that because I'm a 50-year-old man. I've got no place messing around <laughs> with TikTok. Um, but I watch my children and I watch how quickly their thumbs move and their attention spans are getting quite short. Uh, and so they're getting these bite-sized blasts of music. And and I guess, you know, we're probably not going to see record labels championing a, a Bohemian Rhapsody or a Papa was a Rolling Stone because of the the length before you get anything, you know, you just get that groove before you get any kind of drop. Or and I think a, a label now for most sort of pop acts, I'm, I guess I should say, it's not going to happen. And I think, but when you look at those early Motown singles, like they were all probably under three minutes, and right from the yeah. off, whether it's uptight, this old heart of mine, they're all just absolute straight away grabs you and it's yeah. like this is just perfect pop music and it's just going to keep giving you ain't even got to the chorus yet and it's so yeah. sickly sweet so yeah i've gone right around the asses here andrew but my my, <laughs> my question is do any of these changes in how people consume their music now filter through into the creative process of the brand new heavies um because we are heritage band and a lot of our fans are quite old well older than you know teen, teenagers and stuff even though they do come with their parents to shows now so i i just i um not really you know because we don't have to we don't rely on, on being on radio or mm. radio two or radio one or whatever there's no way we're going to end up on that on those stations now yeah so we don't really have to convert or shorten our intros or make sure the song happens quickly i mean there's all that that it's always we always think about how song starts and from maybe from a DJ and a club's point of view, actually. But um, no, we just like to keep we, we we always like to keep things short and sweet as well. You know, even even back in the nineties, you know, we had a pop mentality because our our records were on the radio. Yeah. But there's no real pressure to do that now. I mean, there's an algorithm in Spotify. I found out from a friend of mine, this producer called Mark Ralph, who does a lot of but um he does years and years and um what's that? lots of very popular sort of dance music at the sure. moment. 
And he says that if you, unless your record plays for longer than 30 seconds, you don't get paid on Spotify. So he has to, so he, he basically, ha the record has to grab you within 30 seconds. And that's an algorithm. So I guess that's why um, the short intention spans are being shortened and everything's got to happen really quickly. Um, so that's, that's one damaging thing that I think that's, has happened. That's truly, but, if that's but, the case, that's so shit, isn't it? <laughs> It's, it's really it is really weird. I don't think people realise, and most people don't realise that that thirty you don't get paid if you get if you play the song if you're streaming a song for twenty nine seconds, no one gets paid. You see, it has to be over thirty, so that's that's going to dictate a lot of how music's going to sound in the future. Yeah, um, it's probably going to be shortened. I guess the more music there is out there, but you know, but on the other hand, you do get movies where you're a captive audience and you have to watch the whole movie, even things like Frozen. You know, some of those songs are massive, great big, you know, make epic sort of productions and you and you you'll listen to it because you're watching the movie. Yeah. So maybe that's where things are gonna go. Um you know Andrew, tell me the first song you remember hearing that had an emotional impact on you, please. Um the words yeah, I remember I was looking thinking about that question actually and I was thinking you know, emotions can be, they can be happy, they can be sad. But the one track that really, you know, when you're when you're growing up as a teen and you fall in love for the first time, <laughs> that's a big, you never forget that. You never forget that feeling. And everything around you kind of, is kind of frozen in that time. And any, any track or movie makes you think of that first time you fell in love, or if, even if you fell out of love as well. But the track that was on, I fell, I, my first girlfriend was, um, I was, probably 13 or 14 and it was the summer i can't remember the year sorry about that but um give me the night the album came out and there's a track called love times love and i remember listening to that at this school disco was it a, like a, a sort of local disco in a church hall i remember going up to this girl who goes to went to my school and asked her out and she said yes and that track was on at the same time <laughs> so i always relate george benson love times love that whole album and um, Give Me The Night and all the, all those other amazing tracks to that first feeling yeah. of, wow, she likes me and I'm gonna, I've am gonna got a girlfriend and all that. So that that's, that's, a, that's still a trigger, that, that that track. Oh, what a track it is as well. I mean, you know, we, we've mentioned the, 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 the genius songwriters at uh, Motown, but George Benson's not yeah. shy of a hit either, is he? Oh, my God. I've seen him a few times as well. So absolutely. I was in, I was in awe of him. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so tell me a little bit about where, where home was and and you know growing up and um, and how musical was it you you, you mentioned <clears> that your dad bringing some records home tell me tell me about home home was in ealing uh west london um i don't know why usually a lot of the jamaicans that were coming over west indians that were coming over in the very early 60s were living in either notting uh Labrick grove or brixton or areas like that for some reason my uncle came over in 57 Uncle Samuel, and he set up his building like a, he ended up having a building company. And he then he invited his sister, my mum, over, and they all ended up living in in West Ealing, <laughs> Northfields, a random area. So that's where I grew up, and that's where I met the other members of the Brandy Heavies, Simon and Jan, went to school together with them. Yeah. Um, so it was, yeah, it was a lovely, quiet suburban, loads of parks and greenery everywhere. And um, that was my world. And um, luckily enough, Yehan and Simon were into music as well, so they had 
guitars at home and Leanne's brother, the drummer, uh, he was a bass player and he gave me my first bass. I didn't know anything about instruments or music. But my, my real, you know, the, the biggest influence was, was really my dad at that age because he was really, really into music. No musicianship in the family, but I did have a pianist um, great aunt. Um, I found out later on. But, you know, living, you know, growing up in Jamaica, the, the resources are a little bit scarce, yeah. especially in the 50s and, and 40s. But um, it's, it's in my blood, you know, I haven't had that many lessons, I haven't had any bass lessons, a few drum lessons at school. But it's, I think it's just something in the family. And, um, yeah, I just got, got very, very lucky. So was there records on at home all the time? <laughs> all the time. My mum even strung up this. She had, for some reason, my sisters were in dance. They had this, went to this dance school. So she had to have a, a reel-to-reel tape player. I don't know where she got it from, but all the music that they used to, that my sisters used to choreograph their dances to were on this reel to reel. Somehow my mum managed to record from the radio onto the reel to reel, and then she hooked up this speaker in the front, in the in the living room, and um, yeah, there was just music playing all the time, and it was just completely normal. Was, you know, the radio or or records that they brought from Jamaica. But um, there's a lot of music in the house. And even at that age, you, you just don't think, oh, I'm going to do music. I'm going to be a musician. You just don't think that. You just enjoy the music for what it is. But all that time, it was all going in. I was just soaking it all up, ready for, you know, what happened with the band. You, you mentioned that you met Simon and Jan at, um, at school. Um, I'm going to ask you for track three to tell me uh, the name of the song uh, that reminds you of your time at school, please. You know what, the, the whole two-tone thing was going on at school. Um, and there were two tracks. I chose Mirror in the Bathroom by The Beat because that was, um, I just, there was something about that. There's a darkness to that, even though it was quite sort of jumpy and bouncy track. But yeah, I just, could, I had this image in my head about what this bathroom was, was like and the mirrors and all that stuff. It was very um, evocative and, and um, really got under my skin, that track, in a nice way. Um, but there's loads of tracks like, you know, uh, what's the other one? The Selector and all that sort of stuff. But the, yeah. but the two-tone thing was massive when I was just coming into, when I was just 11 or 12 at school, 12, 13. That always reminds me of school because there was a guy that used to have this sort of quite cool dance. He copied the dance from The Madness or something, but he was really good at it. And when we had school parties, it was always in the middle of the dance floor dancing. So that's that's a a very vivid memory um, of school days. Could you see the, the importance? Sorry? Could you could you see oh. the importance, Andrew, of like you know bands like um, I, I guess in those you know in, in the late seventies, early eighties, bands like uh, the Specials and, and and I guess very early UB forty that were multicultural bands because it was quite groundbreaking, wasn't it? It was. It was when you, when before you saw that it was you, you just it was just normal. But then you suddenly think, oh, oh, right, that's interesting. That's quite nice. It just made it made used to make me it made me feel good. Yeah, that all these people were getting together and there's no because um, you don't think about politics when you're a kid. You just your world is what it is and you just deal with it. But I did feel good and I thought it was very cool that all these the, that music was bringing all these different types of people together. Yeah, and I, and I think when you look at 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Like, those two-tone bands, whether it be the, the specials, the beat, selector, that, any kind of press shots of them bands... They all looked like a gang, didn't they? They had like they just looked like they should be together. It's just that kind of, yeah. and I love that in bands. You know, I saw that you see that in really early press shots of UB40, really early press shots of Dexys, all of them bands from around there. They just looked like a yeah. gang, and I, and, and I love yeah. that. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it's it's amazing, and they, it's probably because probably because they are they were they, yeah. they hung out and partied and and just hung out with each other, and you can see that. Um, it's a record company that really try and sort of style the bands and yeah. make them look, you know, but you know, you have to do that to get to, for mass appeal sometimes. Yeah. But, absolutely. um, yeah, they, 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 I mean, you can see the kind of punk, the punk influence that was going on at that time as well, being influencing the two-tone movement and all that sort of stuff. But, um, yeah, there was, it was crazy in those days. I mean, you had lovers, rock, reggae, punk, and two-tone thing all happening at the same time and that whole rockabilly thing was 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 there as well creeping into the charts and that was, so it was a great time and that was all all of them sort of scenes that you mentioned and the labels that were, were putting out a lot of that music were all quite diy and independent and yeah that, you, that was the beginning of the whole independent scene wasn't it absolutely yeah. and and you know could you make them kind of connections and see the lines drawn between that and then what become acid jazz as well I don't think what nowadays you mean. No, like when 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 the label was set up, you know, was that something you could see that you know that was creating a scene much like two tone, creating a label much like what Jerry Dam has done? Could you sort of see the the sort of similarities between it? You know what? Not really. I mean, we were just babies, and we just thought, oh my god, there's this label called Acid Jazz. They want to record us. Oh my god, we were so excited. Someone booked a studio and we could go in there and play our instruments and then hear it back on the massive speakers. That was that. Was, <laughs> we would we if we'd died the day after that, we would have died happy just to hear your music coming back in a proper recording studio. So and you start weird. analyzing when you get older, you analyze it and you know look at it in the past and stuff. But yeah, 
It's it's so weird, Andrew. I've 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 done five hundred and thirty of these podcasts now, and whenever you speak to musicians and artists, they all talk about those early days of yeah. of kind of it's all to be played for, and and just the the excitement of doing the the most basic things like like you say, getting to a studio, playing your music, and hearing it back. Most people, yeah. go, they were the best days. It was so exciting and all to be played for. Exactly, it it was because. You know, it, it's not a job at that point. It doesn't become a job. Yeah. As soon as you get paid, it, it changes. Yeah. <laughs> then it, it all changes. As soon as, you know, someone emerges as a, as a writer and, yeah, and someone else isn't a writer and you get the hangers-on and the girlfriends and the sometimes, you know, a few drugs here and there. But um, <laughs> then it starts to get... Then you start to kind of... It, it, it's less about being a group and being together all the time um and more about just you know having fun and, and um the music and then you start getting mortgages and bills and stuff like that so the motivation is not purely just pure fun yeah it's money as well but i think we because we went to school together we did we've all we've, we always had that foundation of being mates we've yeah. always had that we still we still are i mean not so much with with the drummer Jan, but um yeah, I used to. I've, I see Simon more than I see my family sometimes. But yeah, if, if anyone's listening out there that's starting a band or early on in the music business, um, or you want to be fame, uh, successful or famous or whatever, just really cherish the early days and cherish the reason why you spend all your pocket money on a guitar or on, on a sequencer or a, a, a laptop, an iPad to make music. Yeah, they are going to be the best days of your life and just and just cherish and enjoy them when you was at school like you say when when you met um the, the, the lads from the band was was there anything that you wanted to do or you know a, a career choice or was music always the focus isn't it was never the focus <laughs> never the focus my when i realized because i was i was quite good at art and i didn't realize that until i was 16 17 and um and I got my um A level A pass in, in art and um I found it quite easy. You know how lazy boys are, you just want to do something easy and efficient. So I thought I'm gonna do a degree in fine art and then go to design school and become an industrial designer. That's what that was what I was going to do. And but at the same time I, I started art college, we got offered a deal. And my, I remember my lecturer, my painting lecturer, told me, Andrew, you're gonna, you've got to make a decision. You can't do both. Because um, I was trying to hide the fact that I was in the studio when I wasn't at college. But the photographer, the photography lecturer at my, my, my art school knew someone at Chrysalis Records. <laughs> and she, she saw, and the teacher at school <laughs> saw a picture of me with Chrysalis written on the bottom. And then she said to me, "Oh, that's why you're never in school, never in college." <laughs> so I had to make a decision that summer, and yeah. you know, hopefully, it was the right decision to 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 stay in the band. Yeah, I mean, it worked out all right. Yeah, not bad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Tell me about the first record you remember buying from a record shop, please, Andrew. First record. Um, I know it sounds like I'm making this up, but the first, actual first record I took my room counting out my pocket money and then calling Jan uh, and saying um, they've got a copy of Le Freak in Lullaby of Broadways which was our local record shop like very very local independent record shop and it was a 12 inch and it was 
75p and it was a lot of money in the 70s 1977 no 78 so we put or was it 75 each i mean it might have been one pound 40 something but we put our pocket money together toddled off to the shop found the record got them to play it and then we bought it and we used to share i think he used to have it one week because he couldn't record it couldn't properly record onto even cassettes in those days yeah and i had it one week and he had the after we kind of swapped it around at school um and that was Le Freak, but it was the 12 inch version, the full length, yeah. I think it's probably six minutes or something. But that was the first record I bought. Yeah. Oh my god. I mean let's 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 take a moment and, and, and talk about Noel Rogers because you know we've we've seen you know from from the the, the, the heyday of, of, of Sheik and the incredible music he was making there through to multiple artists, obviously Dinah Ross being one of those that that he's produced fantastic records mm. for and and then I, I, I guess kind of in the you know, the nineties, we, we we didn't see a lot um, or hear a lot from Nile Rogers, and the Renaissance now is huge. You know, there's there everybody has has, has realised just how incredible this artist is, and and yeah. you can go and see Nile Rogers, you know, play, play Chic and 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 all the other songs that he's produced and written, and oh, what an absolute genius! Absolute genius, yeah. I mean, they're they're, they're a big influence, Bernard Edwards especially i mean there's songs i can even just pick out of my head as yeah. a song called dream on dreamer that the brownie heavies yeah released and um if you listen to the bass lines and that there's something that he does if he plays very very short notes and they're octaves and i i know at the time when i was writing the bass line for dream on dreamer i wasn't really thinking i'll just copy you know bernard's line but you can but a few years after I've been listening to it and I thought, and I, and I knew, realized it was massively influenced by him. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure what track, but if you just listen to those two, you'll see some similarities. And I'm noticing it a lot with a lot of other bass lines. And I hope people don't think that I've just been copying other bass players, but that music just goes into your soul and it comes out when you're, when you're being creative, it all comes out. Um, we actually met them as well. And I think it was 19, in, in New York. We went to this Chinese restaurant and they, they met up with them and and oh, Bernard uh, as well. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're oh, both. Man. They're both there because he didn't pass until. When did he pass? It was after that, anyway. Yeah. Obviously, or or, the, or it was a lookalike, and we just hung out with them. Didn't really get to talk about music because we were too scared to, that we were going to bore them. But <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean that's one of the most amazing moments to meet them. Yeah. Um. But yeah, big influence on the band. Groove wise, and especially you know his bass playing. Tell me a little bit about the, the you know the the, the, the early nineties and, and throughout the nineties when you know these three lads from from school that were mates had, had you know <clears throat> created this band that become you know a, a huge success. And do you think that it was really important that you had that friendship in place before the band? blew up do you think you know between the three of you you sort of kept each other grounded or, or did you or might have gone the yeah. other way the three of you wound <laughs> each other up to become even more crazy i don't know like you know tell me a little bit about how you know three lads from school all of a sudden you know you're on covers of magazines and you know you're on the tv and and and, and I, mm -hmm. I always like to tell us a little bit about that and then i, I want to ask you about top of the box yeah yeah it, it because it at the time it, it felt it didn't it wasn't very it wasn't a really super quick thing we didn't we didn't just meet up and then get signed and then we're now on tv it was a, it was a gradual process we used to meet up in the summer holidays 
and just jam and jam and try and sound like the Herbie, her, try and sound like um, Herbie Hancock and the Headhunters band and yeah. also the JBs. Those were our, those are the two things we wanted to sound like them, you know. So we tried to mimic their the, their grooves and the funky, the absolute incredible funkiness and the meters as well. They were our go tos for for grooves, you know. But we, uh, but again, I'll say again that we never used to put the record on and then copy it. It was just the feel, and the and the and the just the feel of, of how funky they were. We tried to mimic, um, but yeah, I mean, it's. I, I suppose it was about a two, two to three year process, and at that age, it's quite a long time. So we had the chance to to develop and morph and and get used to being on stage and used to having fans, you know, shouting, screaming, whatever, on stage. Um, so it was a very gradual process until we signed to the Delicious Vinyl in 1990. And then, you know, we got shoved, we got flown to America and straight to West Hollywood. <laughs> I remember meeting the bass player from the Bangles the second night we were there. Um, and all these other crazy people, Herbie Hancock, one week, Al Jarreau and Lenny Kravitz and stuff. And we just, we used to look at, we used to turn to each other and go, what the is going on? And we used to have these little, little internal giggles that no one else saw. But it was us telling each other, oh my God, this is like a dream. It's happening. But then we'd turn away from each other and just sort of, you know, be cool about it and say, yeah, yeah, we knew this was going to happen. So that friendship really, it did ground us, actually. It made it grounded us. You know, we always, we always, um, you know, just give give each other little glances and nudges and and uh, just to just to stay real about it, yeah. you know. And it, we never got sucked into the whole fame kind of press. What we, we never believed our own fame. We we're always quite very English about it and yeah. um, uh, self-effacing. And um, you know, we, we we found taking compliments quite difficult <laughs> when Stevie Wonder's over there starts singing your song at some award ceremony. Um, yeah, we just thought, was he, has he, why is he, we always, we're always quite, oh, was he told to sing it or something like that? <laughs> we never really believed our own success. But um, that's what kept us grounded, I think, you, you and talk, still around today. You talk about being very English, and, and, and one of the very fabrics of, of English music is Top of the Pops, and... And you know, we, we all grew up watching that show because you know, it, it, you know, uh, around the time when it would have been, you would have been watching the Tuto bands. That was the only place that you could see music. You know, that yeah. it was top of the pops Thursday nights. That's where you got your your, yeah. your, your, your hit of, of 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 seeing what your pop stars looked like. Um, yeah. Tell me how it was going on top of well, the pops. Well, I always instantly think of my mum um, because she. <laughs> She was, I mean, surprisingly, they were actually very supportive about, I mean, they knew that I was at art school and doing a degree and everything, so they were proud of that, but um, and they, they never, maybe because I kept it quite quiet about the music, but they never told me to go and get a proper job. They were very supportive with me and the band. I think mainly because I was with guy, my friends from school, so there was no chance of me getting, you know, joining a cult or something like that. But um, they were very supportive and like you said everyone that it was the pinnacle of success if you i mean it was actually it wasn't just like having a a thousand views on facebook if you're on top of the pops you were pretty serious 
serious cat and um because it, it was watched at the peak it was watched by 22 million people in britain it's crazy right and and growing up I, I remember seeing susan quattro on there and I was, I was obsessed with her for some reason and i remember seeing her on there and i thought i never thought i'd ever be on there but i think every child every person knows that when you're on top of the pops on the bbc you've kind of you know you've gotten up you've not made it but you're on your way yeah very very close because it was only charted bands that were on there and um i promise i promised in my head to my mum to to myself that i'm i'm, I'm gonna I'm, i know what i was gonna say i'll say that differently um i knew that if i told my mum i'm on top of the pops She'd be she'd be very happy, and she could tell all her mates at work and feel proud of her son. <laughs> so when we did go on the first time, I told her, and she I I saw that glint in her eye, and um, I felt I just felt so happy to make her her that that happy, you know. Oh, and um, she used to have people. She used to work in a charity shop. Where she when she ret- she wasn't. I think she was just about. She retired quite young, so she, she used to do a lot of voluntary work and work in a charity shop on the high street in Ealing. And then all of a sudden, a lot, of, a lot of her friends used to come in and talk about the band. And I saw your son on TV and all that stuff. And I was, it just made me feel so good because I, I know that I made her happy. Love but yeah, that. getting on top of the pops, is, it was, I think we all, we all realized at that point that we've got a career here. Yeah. That was the biggest thing. I knew that we weren't just fly by night and I knew that we would get you know, more album deals and we'll travel and stuff like that. So... It was, a, it was a very special moment. We ended up being on it about five or six times as well. So yeah. that's uh, so very nice. <laughs> okay. So with success comes partying. Um, tell me about the song that soundtrack your years clubbing. Uh, oh, yeah. Um, is it Gwen McRae? I Believe in Miracles. Is that what I put? Uh, Jackson Sisters. Jackson Sisters. Oh, I Believe in Miracles, right? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know why I said Gwen McRae. <laughs> I mean, we Jackson can talk about Gwen McRae as well because, oh, God, yeah, talk about her all Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, I Believe in Miracles was, I think that was the track that, in the whole Rare Groove scene, that was the track. If any DJ put that on in a club in London, uh, the club would just go wild. And I, and I remember dancing to that. We were quite into dancing and being funky and stuff like that and dressing up and everything. So I remember dancing. I remember when that came on, I used to love dancing to that. I used to be able to get a few soul spins in and laugh. <laughs> and um, I just got quite good at the spin, the spins. So, um, and that was it's such an amazing track. There's so much energy in it. Yeah. And it just seems to go on and on and on and build up and the dynamics and it's just get more and more exciting towards the end of the song. So, yeah, that was when that track came on. You knew you were you were having a good time because you could dance your heart out to it. Absolutely. Whereabouts was you going clubbing then? Uh, mainly um, the Cat in the Hat and the Wag. Really, I mean, the Cat in the Hat was a club that um, Barry Sharp and Lascelles Gordon started in the around probably eighty seven, eighty six. Yeah, and that was of the we had our first ever concert in that club. They. Um, they put us on because we gave them a tape of us jamming in Jan's bedroom. And um, I I knew in my head that it sounded just like a record. We had this, uh, Jan's dad had a really cool mic. He was a headmaster of a school. So he had this stereo, Sony stereo mic. And we recorded ourselves over the course of about four or five hours, different positions of the mic. And at one point, it sounded like a record. 
So I said, you know what? We should go down to Cat in the Hat and, play, and give it to the DJ. And he took it. And then back, we were waiting around. Is he going to play? Is he going to play? And suddenly it came on, blasting out the speakers. And everyone carried on dancing. And we thought, wow, maybe we are good. <laughs> and then, a few, honestly, a few weeks later, he was at our rehearsals. And then he found a singer. And he joined the band. And, and we started doing many, many more gigs in London. At the WAG Club, especially, every Thursday, we used to play down there. What a um, I've forgotten the question now. Uh, what was the question? <laughs> no, I just wanted to know what clubs you went to. Oh, um, yeah. So, yeah, that is mainly those two. Oh, we went to go to Billion Dollar Bay, Blitz, all the clubs in Soho and the West End we used yeah. to go to. Even non-soul-funk sort of ones, we, should just, we just used to love going clubbing. Yeah. There's a different time then as well. You know, you could, it was easy, you know, it was easy to get in to town on the tube and go clubbing and come back out but um yeah mainly it was mainly the wag club upstairs black market it was called and um the hat in the hands in uh leicester square wonderful i'd like you to tell me uh your favorite song from an artist from your home county please well um jk jamiroquai he's uh he's an Ealing boy we used to hang out he, he used to go around on his skateboard um just I don't know what I'm not sure what he used to get up to, but it was always on his skateboard skating around Ealing. And he was really into music as well. I, we didn't know at the time. Um but one day when we I think we were at the Acid Jazz office and his his friend who actually got us our first deal, a guy called Tunji Williams, who who got, got us our deal when we were very young at Chrysalis Records, he said, Guys, I've got this guy as a singer, you should let you should get him to sing, get him singing with Sorry about that. You should get him to audition for your band. And then we, we jammed with him. But we always we always saw ourselves as a, a band with a female singer, like, you know, Vicky Anderson, James Brown, that kind of setup. Um, so we did have a jam. He's a great singer, great mover. Um, but we, we decided not to choose him as our lead singer. But yeah, he actually auditioned to be the lead singer of the Brownie Hills. Wow. Um, but he's, yeah, good old Ealing boy. Um, and yeah, his, I was just absolutely blown away by the stuff that he put out, especially Cosmic Girl. And basically anything um, from the first two albums, I just thought, wow, that, this is just unbelievable. Yeah. And um, we were quite jealous because he got a little bit bigger than we did, even though we started before. So there's always, there always that, um, that kind of rivalry going on. But um, That's healthy you know, though, later, right? Huh? That's healthy though, isn't it? It is healthy. It is healthy. But I wanted, I wanted a Ferrari at the age of 22 as well. <laughs> I think <laughs> he, he had he about 15 of them, didn't he? Yeah, he did. He did. But he, he took me for a ride once. Um, he took me for a ride. I bumped into him at a petrol station in, in Notting Hill. And he had a, a Modena. He just got it. And I said, you've got to take me for a spin. So he, I jumped in. And he nearly, kill, he nearly killed me. Was, <laughs> I think he was showing off so much. That he just just missed this corner, and it was exciting at the time. But God Almighty, he's a, he's a nutcase, but a fun nutcase. <laughs> fantastic, fantastic. Well, look, we've got to your last track, and um, and for this one, Andrew, I'm going to ask you to tell me a song that you think many people may not know that you would like them to hear, please. I, you know, I, I think when you're when you're associated with a, a certain genre of music like soul or fungal hip-hop you kind of you people think that uh if you, you that you don't listen to anything else and i think it's like it's almost like a 
you know, you can't sort of be open about what you like and stuff. I like, honestly, I like tons of different stuff. I like a lot of 70s rock and American. I, I even listen to country yeah. music. I'm really, really into it because if you're right, if you're a songwriter and you don't listen to country music, you'll never be able to write a song probably. They're, they are the, they're genius at writing songs because they keep it very simple and um, there's not a lot of production. So you can really see how a song is built listening to country music, even from the 70s. Um, Rhinestone Cowboy, if you haven't heard that um, lately, put it on <laughs> and just check out that song. It's an amazing song. And there's another band called Bread, um, the guitar man, um, that is an absolutely... I remember playing it to a friend of mine. He thought I was gone, I'd gone mad. But I was in that some kind of songwriting mode, the guitar singer-songwriter mode, and it's, it's, it's a beautiful song. Um, the, the pre-chorus... And also, the pre-chorus to Rhinestone Cowboy, before you get that chorus, which is huge, the pre-chorus is phenomenal. Do you know the song? So you're a fan of that song? Glenn Campbell, I mean, he sings Wichita Lion Man, which is one of the f greatest records ever written. Oh, and like... Absolutely. <laughs> I, can't I can't believe I'm speaking to someone else that likes that. But, uh, he's, he's, honestly, I'm just, I play it to my kids before they go to bed. Yeah. When they were when they were young, I played it like every night for about six months. Yeah, so it's in their heads now. Um, but yeah, that that the B the section before the chorus. I mean, that's actually it's more it's as just as important as the chorus. It's Absolutely, probably more important. <laughs> but um, but yeah, then then in the Elkie Brooks, I thought I always thought she was cool. Pearl's a singer in the seventies, and and um, but then I met um. Who played this track to me? Um, it was Norman Jay played it at a club. And I went up to him and said, what, who the hell is that? And he wouldn't tell me who it was. And um, then he finally, after a few weeks of pestering, he told me it was L.P. Brooks. And I couldn't believe it. And I spent the next 10 years trying to find it on vinyl. Luckily, um, they invented uh, iPods <laughs> and Spotify. And I've got a copy of it now. I managed to find one in, in, um, in Germany, in fact. But it's such a, it's such a, it's a brilliant disco track and it's a great song. And you just don't really relate Elkie Brooks with a banging disco track, yeah. you know, especially the intro that there's a glissand. You know, when you pull your hand down a, a piano keyboard, it's called a glissando. And then there's so many of them in the intro. And I think I, I love a, I love a decent glissando on a song, on a disco song specifically. But um, I love that track. It's called The Rising Cost of Love and um, everyone should, should eke it out and hear it, listen to it, dance to it. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, look, we've spent a lot of time talking about other people's music. Um, let's talk about yours. What's happening? Um, lots going on at the moment. We've got, um, uh, we've got a, a, I hate saying greatest hits, but it's a, a collection, let's say, a collection of our popular songs. Um, it's called Never Stop, and it's basically the last... The, all, all our time all the, we spent a long time on Warner Brothers and all the stuff we released on Warner Brothers on the album called Shelter and Brother Sister it's they've, they've chosen all the best songs and a few remixes that no one's ever heard or, or that weren't released commercially and that's coming out um, on vinyl and CD on the 28th of September this month in a few days time um, so that's been on pre-order for a few months and we've also got We've got tons of, we've got another album coming out next year, another collection of music. And they're re-releasing Brother Sister next year. We've got a brand new studio album coming as well at the end of next year. And we've also got three dates 
uh, in November, where we've invited the London Concert Orchestra to play with us. Um, we're playing at the Barbican on the 9th, which has just been just sold out. So we're working on that. I'm actually my my stress level's gone up a little bit over the past few weeks because we have to we have to basically rewrite a two we have to write a two hour show uh, with a string arranger, and um, it's beautiful to do, but um, it takes a lot of work, a lot of focus. But yeah, so those concerts. There's one of the nights of, um, at the Barbican, ninth of November. Could you help me with the other two days? I haven't got them in front of me. But we're playing in the Birmingham Symphony Hall and Manchester right. Symphony Hall as well. I'll put the, yeah, the, the, the PR dates gonna... in the show notes yeah. for, uh, for this episode so people can uh, Thank you. find out exactly when uh, when they are. Um, and also, if people want to keep up to speed with um, all of the releases and all of the shows, where's the best place to, to find out about all things Brand New Heavies? Um, yes, Facebook. Um, we're, yes, Brand New Heavies Facebook. Um, Instagram, at Brand New Heavies at Instagram. Um, and uh, yeah, just, just to, you know how easy it is to find bands these days. Just, just Google us and uh, everything's on our, our record company website, which is thebrandnewheavies.com. But it's got hyphens between all the words because we couldn't, we couldn't afford the... Uh, someone had already nicked <laughs> the Brand New Heavies. And we weren't going to pay... It's nine grand to get it back. So absolutely. So yeah. <laughs> well, if it's cool with you, we, we, we'll tag you on uh, all of our social media posts for this episode as well. So if people haven't Thank found you. you already, then they can do so. Um, Andrew, it's been an absolute delight talking records with you. Thank you so much for giving up your time today, mate. Likewise, and sorry about all the jiggery pokery before getting here. We got but, there, um, and it was, it was totally worth it, mate. Thank you so oh, much. I'm going to press thank stop, you, but don't go anywhere. There you have it. The brand new heavies. Oh, how delightful was Andrew? Go and check out that playlist over on Spotify because them songs, man, like, they've got some groove. Of course they're going to have groove. He's in the brand new heavies. He's the bass player in the brand new heavies. Like, that's where the groove's at. Um, so, yeah, go check that out. Thanks ever so much for listening. As I mentioned um, at the uh, at the beginning of the podcast, go check out the back catalogue. Um, go get stuck in and listen to some of them episodes. Um with uh, the likes of um, Acid Jazz, uh, Head Honcho, Eddie Pillar, through to Primal Scream, through to um, James Lavelle of Uncle and Mowax, through to um, Chuck D of Public Enemy. Go check out my chat with Chuck. That was amazing. Um, so many conversations I've had um, for the last few years. So go explore that back catalogue because they are all for free. You can find out about where you can access that back catalogue. You can find out about everything else, the Patreon, all of the things that I mentioned at the very beginning of this podcast at the website, Off The Beat and, not beaten, Off The Beat and Track Podcast.com. Thanks again to Andrew. Um, I'll be back next time. In the meantime, uh, be lovely to each other. I'll see you soon. Bye-bye.